on one end of a continuum, you have a slow single joint movement, okay? And then on the other end of the continuum, you have a fast multi-joint movement that requires decision-making and reaction. If those are the ends of my continuum, you'd argue the farther you get to the left, that internal side, single joint, slow movement, the more you can get away with internal language because there's less complications available to the movement because it's so simple. But the more you move to the right, you need to have language that provides a focus that is nimble, that is quick, and doesn't cause a lot of cognitive pollution that could interrupt the physical execution of the movement itself. And those tend to be external, and I'd argue even more so, an analogy is, is a supercharged cue when you get those micro stories right. That was Nick Winkleman, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the free lap timing system in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step by step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous. So check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Hey, everybody. Hope you guys are doing well. I'm really excited to bring this episode to you. And it's all about coaching, cueing, and the imagery and the guidance that we give athletes in instructing them to their highest technical potential. Our guest speaking about this topic today is none other than Nick Winkleman. Nick is the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. He was formerly the director of education for Exos, and he also, while at Exos, oversaw the speed and assessment component of their combine development program. He's an internationally recognized speaker, and he has his PhD with a focus on motor learning and sprinting. In addition to all this, Nick has an anticipated upcoming book called The Language of Coaching, where he goes in detail on his learnings and methods on the impact that communication has on an athlete's ability to learn and perform movement. In doing this podcast, I make it my mission to go to all ends of um, all, all, all borders of this thing we call coaching. A lot of popular episodes and things I like talking about are sets and reps and exercise techniques and biomechanics, 
And that stuff's awesome. I love that stuff. Um, at the same time, I think we all, and maybe a good example is mental training. We all know how important the mind is, but we don't often talk about it that much. We don't really pay true credence to it. We don't spend that much time working on it. I think it's similar with with cueing and, and language and the way that we um, guide and, and communicate and have conversations with athletes in regards to guiding them to their highest technical performance. It's something that I think along with mental training, cueing and, and creating analogies and and putting images in athletes' heads as to what we're trying to get them to accomplish would probably on some level be more the art of this art and science realm of coaching, or perhaps you could say it's the qualitative versus the quantitative. And it's not versus. These are all things that are really important, but in many ways we tend to slant um, quantitative. (laughs) But these discussions and this idea is really important. It's the difference between an athlete running a 4.8 and a 4.7 in the combine. It's the difference between, uh, I like track examples because I, I coach track and I have a lot of experience there, but it's the difference between a 6.10 and a 6.8 high jump. It's There's there's substantial differences that happen in it. And at the top level of sport too, it's the technical separations that really creates the distinguishing. And if you've been coaching, you know how important it is to talk to your athletes and the process of getting them to not only acquire the best technique for them, but also to acquire technique that sticks and that is retained over time. So on today's show, Nick is going to go into how he became interested in coaching cues and communication. He's going to talk about the differences between coaching cues, so internal or external. And then he's also covering analogies, which is a really powerful, as you heard in the teaser, a really powerful element of how we communicate with athletes. We're going to go into that a lot more. And this was an amazing show. Honestly, it's been too long since I can't believe in, in many ways that I really let 190-some episodes go by before I got Nick on the show. Back when I started listening to podcasts in the first place, um, Nick's uh, episodes with other podcast hosts were some of the first that I remember and were some of the most profound in that it had a really big impact on me. And I really enjoy his emphasis and his teaching style. And I'm excited to have him for this show today. Lots of great stuff on this one. And there's no way that you can listen to this and not come out on the other end a better coach. All right, let's get on to it. Episode 193 with Nick Winkleman. Nick, what got you into the art of coaching cues um, or the language of coaching initially? What what brought your interest to that area of the coaching realm? Because I think we don't pay as much attention to that as we do every everything else in the field. Yeah, Joel. I mean, it's it's one of those things that just happened to me more or less by chance. I mean, I possibly have some affinity towards the area. My mom did always tell me that I talk too much. So maybe I uh, had had, had some interest in language from a very young age. But the way it happened was like this. It was my first year running the NFL Combine program at Exos. I think it must have been 2009 or 2010. And I had the program given to me from my predecessors. And so these were some of the best strength coaches still to this day that I know. So insofar as the eight-week plan uh, from when we got the players out of college to them actually going to Indianapolis to run their 40s and you know go through the, the rest of the combine, that was all mapped out. 
So I had already been part of three combines prior. So I knew how to run the program. I had a good idea, but I was going to be, so to speak, the captain of the ship. And in that first year, I was, I, I coached the heck out of it, dotted the I's, crossed the T's, and I made sure every player sweat the details. You know, we had the film out for every session. Like we were getting everything done. I felt that the entire program was executed perfectly. And when I got to Indianapolis, you know, guys start to show up, we get them prepped. And I watched the first day of running with the big guys and the second day of running third day and the fourth day. And as I'm watching my guys run on national television, I remember golden Tate was a very specific one that I can recall. I was looking at their numbers, their PRs from when I had them in Phoenix, Arizona at our training facility. And obviously I was referencing our training video. So how good the guys looked running, so on and so forth. And then I was comparing that, obviously, to what they were doing at the NFL Combine. And something really interesting occurred. And that is, sure, all the guys performed better than when they entered the training facility in early January. But very few, let's say, were running as fast as I knew they could based on our training data. And so I was looking at them like, well, gosh, what's going on? Well, then I added a second layer to that. And when I started looking at, let's say, the sprint technique, the coordination, the skill of running, I realized that the vast majority of them had reverted back to type, so to speak. And they were using a lot of the bad habits that I thought we had rid them of during the training process. Now, rightly or wrongly, I connected part of their, let's say, reduction in times to that shift back to poor technique. So even though they had all improved, fantastic, I knew and I had felt we had left something on the table. So as I deepened my look at that, something dawned on me. And that was we had put them through an eight-week program that had quite a bit of stimulus. They were sprinting, uh, you know, almost every day they were doing strength and power multiple times a week. They were on, you know, high level nutrition plans to optimize their body comp for their personal goals. Like everything was locked in. So insofar as the training stimulus is concerned, there was no questions. It helped all these guys perform. And then I realized that that is exactly what I observed, that it was nothing more than their physical exposure to the training program that had, if you would, upgraded their engine, their capabilities physically, allowing them to get more out of their body, independent of their coordination and their technique. And then I thought to myself, well, what's the number one variable? What's the number one coaching strategy that I am using to manipulate how they run, i.e. the coordination and quality of their movement? And it hit me, my voice, my cueing, my coaching. And I was like, in that moment, I realized I had failed these guys. Sure, I'd facilitated the program that was going to make them better no matter what. But insofar as my contribution that was unique to me helping them move better to get even more performance advantage, I definitely had not optimized that. Something had changed between them leaving Phoenix and them running. And Joel, you know, the number one thing that changed I wasn't standing next to them whispering sweet cues into their ears when they went out there and did it live on NFL Network. And it was from that moment on that I started to study 
and scratch this itch around the coach as a variable and ultimately get into motor learning. And I think my intuition around the gap was correct. Ultimately, as I started to shift how I coached across what I said, when I said it, and even the learning environment, I started to see those results that I didn't see year one actually be brought to the table. And guys not only ran faster physically, but also because we made changes that stick. Yeah, that's that's really what it's all about is is getting it to stick because I think that's what all um, if you're a coach, you you we've all been there where we we communicate something and just like you had said, we we see the athlete and then they're competing and there's there's different motor patterns or they're or they're going back to their old motor patterns and I I think a lot about the idea of the subconscious mind being the most powerful driver or it is and how do we get through to that? Because I feel like a lot of cues and, and, and things we say are only, it's almost like they only reach like that conscious layer. And so how, how do you, uh, I know that you obviously written a whole book on this. There's a lot to cover. So could we just start by the idea of, uh, and I don't know if you've talked about this before, but, but internal versus external cues and what's going on there. And then, and then if there's anything that goes beyond even that, but if we could just start with the internal and external cue, uh, thought and idea. Yeah. You know, so when you start to study the kind of things that coaches say, And for the listeners, when I say coach, I'm really talking about movement professionals in general. So if you teach movement for a living, I'm calling you a coach because just a quick little footnote, my definition of a coach is anyone that helps to move others to the place they want to be. And I believe in that regard, many of us in this field can adopt the word coach. So when we are coaching movement, we tend to find that the cues we use And I'll define a cue as the last idea that goes in the athlete's head before they move. All right. So the cues we use to set focus and therefore hope that that focus improves movement seem to fall on a continuum. And we anchor that continuum on one end with what we call internal cues. Some people call those process-oriented cues. And then on the other, you have external. And again, some people call those outcome-oriented cues. Uh, To give a definition, an internal cue makes reference to the motion of a joint, a limb, or a muscle. So really any reference to body motion where a body part is physically mentioned in the cue, we would call that an internal So let's take a bench press, a really simple one. If I told you to focus on squeezing your pecs or extending your arms or extending your elbows, right, or flexing your elbows, whatever it might be, those are all internal examples. Conversely, on the other side of the spectrum, we have external. And external either relates to the outcome one is trying to achieve or the interaction with the physical environment required to achieve that outcome. So let's use the bench press again. The outcome might simply be push the bar away or push the bar off of you. But if I wanna put a little bit more energy behind that cue, I might say drive the bar away from the bench. So the bench itself has nothing directly to do with the outcome, but by giving that focused thought of bar away from bench, it allows me to narrow my focus in on a very tangible goal and the environment helps me do that. Uh, Equally, let's say I was trying to go for bar speed. I could talk about driving the bar 
or blasting the bar through the ceiling, right? And once again, the ceiling isn't necessarily directly related to the goal, but I can enhance, let's say, the visual strength of that goal in the athlete's mind uh, by referencing the ceiling in the same way that it did the bench. So that's why we see that sometimes external are called outcome-oriented goals because they really just set a goal in the mind and trust the body to achieve it. Whereas internal cues don't necessarily trust the body to achieve it and says, hey, even though the goal is the bench press, I want you to target the focus on the elbows or the pecs to get it done. So when we look at that full continuum and you ask yourself, well, well, does all my language fall somewhere in the vicinity of it? I think more often than not, you'll, you'll find the answer is yes. Now, Joel, there's one other type of cue that we need to, to consider here. And that's cues that we can generally wrap under the, the header of analogies. So internal and external cues tend to be literal. They reference the literal body or the literal world around me that I can touch, feel, and see. But analogies reference the figurative and leverage the mind's, let's say, visual system to be able to move as if. So, for example, I could have someone sprint and I could say sprint off the line as if you were a jet or like a jet taking off. Or I could say drive the bar off of you in the case of the bench press like you were trying to push rubble off your body if something was to collapse on you or some other kind of emotional visual. So in all of these cases, the analogy can be brought to bear in the mind to move as if. And I think if anyone thinks of their favorite teachers or even their favorite coaches, coaches tend to be really good storytellers and they can create these simple stories, these very visually rich stories in our mind that allow us to move as if, making the, the novel movement easier. So What's interesting, though, is analogies in terms of their effect on movement live on the side of the external cues. So we have external cues and analogies on one side of the continuum and internal on the other. And ultimately, what we know is when it comes to the type of things you should think about while you move, not all the things you should think about, but specifically the type of things you should think about while you move to optimize performance now, but most importantly, learning later, the, the cues that fall on that external and that analogy side outperform internal language again and again and again uh, when it comes to the evidence. And I'd say my, as well as many other individuals experience. And just to give everyone a pulse check on when I say evidence, how much I'm talking. Well, in my current endnote where I classify all this research, there's north of 170 research papers that have been accumulating since 1998. And again and again and again, doesn't matter the kind of movement, doesn't matter if it's discrete or continuous, uh, doesn't matter about gender, level, ability, external cues again and again showcase themselves as being superior to supporting performance in the short term and learning in the long term. And, and most certainly, Joel, we can unpack that to the degree that you'd like. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so I'd love to start with the idea of uh, you had said right when you were describing internal cues, you had talked about focus, and I I think about that a little bit on the level of awareness, and and yeah, the the that uh, I like that you had said. The reason I asked, like, is there something else? Is yeah, you had mentioned like the analogy idea too, and because I, I was like, I know there's more than just I guess what we would call internal and external, though you had said the analogy is the external, but with internal cues, is there is is there ever a place that 
it makes sense to use them. I've heard John Kiley talk about, and like you said, it can bring your awareness to a place. And I, you know, I, my thought is perhaps some athletes could use that awareness differently than others, but is there ever a time where an internal cue is a thing we'd want to look at? And if we do, is there a way to really approach it that might be better than a different way? So really interesting. You use the word Joel there, awareness. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. If I, let's take our bench press example. Okay. And you're my, my athlete, Joel, and I'm working with you and I'm trying, we're in a hypertrophy phase. So I'm really looking for more muscle activation, let's say, but I also don't want to deny the fact that you're, let's say you're American football player. I still need strength and power. And I tell you to strictly focus on squeezing your pecs. Okay. Do you consider that cue the same as if I ask you at the end of the set, Joel, how, how did that feel in your pecs? Was it a strong activation or was it a, a lighter activation? Or did you feel no activation at all? Now they, they both reference the exact same thing, the muscle, but in one case I'm doing it before the set and I'm asking you to actively focus on it during the set. In the other case, I'm asking you to tap your awareness uh, because something has already happened, thus you can become aware of it. Do you feel that those are the same as, let's call them, a coaching strategy and a teaching strategy? Yeah, I know. I I feel like it would be different. I think that I was going to say, I think there's a big difference between saying actively squeeze and just have an awareness of what's going on too. Like, yes. So that I think yes. that's a big part. Okay, so so we're getting somewhere here because one of the biggest questions I get asked, Joel, is this exact question around awareness and that people think because I'm, and rightly so, talking about the difference between internal and external, and we can actually get to where I think internal language is critically important because it is, but in the context of this cue, this thing we say right before someone moves, if I ask you to be aware of a body part, during a set that in my opinion, and I'll explain it here, hopefully logically is very different than telling someone to actively use that body part and focus on it. If I say, be aware of something, I'm asking you to observe it, right? So just like watching a video, you observe yourself run, you're observing yourself move insofar as the brain is concerned. That is very different than from a top down brain to body Hey, I want you to actively think about squeezing your pec or extending your elbows. So from an evidence perspective, have they made that distinction insofar as the phrasing of the cue? I know they have not. And I would be very interested to see the difference. In my mind, they are miles apart. When I give someone an internal cue and tell them to actively move a joint or a muscle, I am constraining or rather defining that complex movement by that micro component. Conversely, if I simply ask you to observe something in motion, I'm not dictating how that motion takes place. And thus from a brain perspective, I'm not constraining the way the movement operates. I'm simply asking you to become aware of that movement, possibly spotlighting one region. So insofar as awareness is concerned, I think asking people to be aware of a component of the body, a muscle or a joint, probably and should have a huge place, especially for complex, fast motor skills. But I'll hold hard on the point 
I cannot think of any logical reason to ask someone in a feed forward manner to actively move that joint or actively move that muscle because you're asking the brain to do paradoxical things. You're asking the brain to control the complexities of an entire multi-joint muscle and excuse me, multi-joint movement while still putting all the attention drawn by the cue onto only one part of it. In terms of the neurology around attention, that is physically impossible to do, which is why we see a constrained effect on the movement. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah. And I see that I see that a lot in young athletes too. Like I've worked with a lot of like young like club track athletes and these kids, you could tell, you could tell in just watching them who was told to like drive their knee when they high jump because <laughs> they don't <laughs> yeah. get off the ground, yes. but then their knee shoots up. And I'm just like, who told yes. you to do this? <laughs> so I, I, and what you're saying, it takes me to the, the inner game of tennis by Timothy Galloway a little bit. And that's where, oh, yes. yeah, I, I, cause it was uh, when John Kylie had originally mentioned that, that internal cues, it can be good if it's it, it's an awareness like thing, like if your focus is there and it's not necessarily it doesn't become this hard line like you must move this. But if it puts your exactly. joint, if you get puts your awareness there and you're able to do something good with that. And I, I remember after reading the Timothy Galloway book, I was just doing some sprints and sprint practice. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this sprint and just have awareness of my hips or my glutes. I'm going to have an awareness of what this joint's doing and just notice it. And I felt like just doing that helped things to get better on their own. And, and it was like, yeah. it was, yeah, it was pretty substantial versus every time I've, I've tried to do just like a cue that's in a book or something that's a, that's a hard line internal thing. It's never really um, manifested that well. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. But, but Joel, I think that distinction is the key. And I think when you explain that distinction to people, so I'm very happy that you asked it opens up their mind because I think I do think the vast majority of internal language that people feel works the best actually is in the form of that awareness piece. And that's when you give this strict internal external description and people bucket awareness as being the same thing as an internal cue, they they start to get defensive and probably rightly so because it sits in contrast to their lived experience. And that's where in the book, in fact, you know, I, I have an entire section on awareness for that exact reason so that it doesn't inadvertently get attached to the internal cueing bucket. And normally, I think with awareness, we can actually broaden that strategy where we ask, you know, these questions at the end of reps. Did that feel light or heavy? Did it feel fast or slow? And just start even to empowering our our players, our athletes with this language that almost holistically tags the feel of the whole movement or to your point, a specific segment of the movement, but that is non-restrictive language because we're not providing solutions. We're not providing strategies because to provide a strategy for one joint assumes that we must provide strategies for all joints and to think that complex movements are run cognitively step-by-step. I don't think it takes much for us all to realize that's not how movement works, but unfortunately our behavior as coaches uh, denies that at times and people coach in a way as if taken literally, it would be to assume that that coach thinks that the player is going to control their movement step by step with a lot of these feed forward internally oriented cues, which we want to move away from. And, and maybe Joel, if I can, I can start to talk about where internal language does fit in my model. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Okay. 
So when I talk in, in the book about language, I talk about this idea of a coaching communication loop. And I call it a loop because there are certain types of communication we use throughout a training session. So I'm not talking about communication in the broadest sense of, for example, giving a team talk or talk to a player from a disciplinary perspective. Everything I'm talking about is in the teaching coaching context. And when I look at this model, I describe it as follows. When you're initially teaching a movement, you're going to describe it. You're going to give a longer explanation. Or when you're breaking a movement down during video analysis, you're going to describe it or ask your player, your athlete to describe it. Uh, then from a teaching perspective, or again, if you're doing video analysis, there's going to be some kind of visual feedback. So either a demonstration or you're watching a video on a screen, still a form of demonstration. So we describe it and we demonstrate it. And these two pieces of the communication loop serve to increase our players' knowledge of the movement, their awareness of, their, of the movement. And it's in these two pieces that I believe the, there's a home, there's a place for internal language. It's virtually impossible to observe a biomechanical movement or, or video notably if, it, if it's an analysis purpose and not talk about the body. It's virtually impossible to set up a squat, let's say when you're describing how to squat or deadlift and not talk about the body. So in my opinion, when you're describing movement, no reason why you can't use internal language because we're trying to elevate knowledge. But, and Joel, tell me if you see it different, the knowledge of what the movement is and knowing how to do it, I don't believe those are the same thing. We have plenty of coaches. I can describe sprinting in perfect detail, Joel, but am I elite sprinter? Not a chance. So we cannot confuse the, the knowledge about a movement, the description of a movement, the biomechanical breakdown of a movement with the type of thoughts or focus that promotes the successful execution of that movement. The doing, if you would, is different than the knowing. So you describe it. You demonstrate it when you cue it when you attempt to put an idea in the athlete's head to help them move better whether you're the one doing the cueing or you're asking them questions to facilitate them coming up with the cue doesn't make a difference we'd like that cue to be as we defined them earlier external or an analogy uh, then they do it and obviously we need to be in a position to observe and watch them move we should be silent while they're moving as to not distract them. And then we debrief it. And once again, when we debrief it, it's a conversation. I believe coaching is about conversations between myself and my athlete. And I might ask some of those awareness questions. How did it feel? I might give them a choice, you know, heavier light. It might be more open-ended. Talk me through your thought process and what that felt like to you. But either way, I use that debrief to understand what was going on in the player's head and use that alongside what I visually saw. And ultimately, if you think about what we use that information for, Joel, we use that information to upgrade or repopulate a new cue, confirm we need to use the same cue, or possibly start again because we cued the wrong thing in the first place. So I call that the DDCDD model. Describe it, demonstrate it, cue it, do it, debrief it. I call that big one, those five, that's the long loop, the long loop. Once I've taught a movement for the first time or someone's aware of the movement, then I go to my short loop, cue it, 
do it, debrief it. Cue it, do it, debrief it. And it's that debrief at the back end and that describe on the front end that create opportunities to talk about the what, talk about the movement, use terms that elevate our knowledge of the skill. But we want to understand that explicit knowledge of the skill is different than the implicit knowledge one needs to perform it. And that's why the cue, the only resident in that cue is analogy and external. Its neighbor is internal in the description and the debrief. So it lives on the block. It's in the neighborhood. But the cue itself, we reserve that for external and analogy. And think about any movement you've ever performed in your life as a coach or as an athlete yourself and reflect when you were in that flow state, when it was going well, your mind is not on your body. It's on the outcomes your body is trying to achieve. And the last point, the footnote is this. People say, well, well, but I need to teach them how to control the movement. I need to teach them how to get all these parts to work together. And I say, yes, I agree. And my models, and I would guarantee reflective of a lot of work people already do, can get to that nuance, can get to the micro without sacrificing the macro. It's all in the language we use. Yeah, I like to, as you were talking, I, I just think about the idea of the coach who just, the athlete does a rep, then the coach says, do this. And the athlete does another rep and the coach says, do this. Like, it's <laughs> yes. just, it's, just, it's so funny, but it happens all the time, right? But I, I love the idea how you're talking about this. It is a conversation. And to the idea of, of not asking the athlete at any point, like how they felt or how they're perceiving it. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's such an important element of all this. I, I often think of, uh, if w- sometimes I feel like we should rename coach to like facilitator or, uh, amb- you know, it's, or you're, you're making the athlete an ambassador for their own performance rather than thinking Love that. that you as the coach is gonna, you know, have all this, this cue bag and you're gonna like mold this athlete. It's like, it's ultimately, it's got to go through their own, um, their own subconscious yeah. mind. Yeah. It's coaching from their perspective. Yeah. We're trying to coach from their perspective, which means we need to invite them to share their perspective so that they might invite us into that. And we can then identify the situations where their perspective and knowledge and feel is enough. And then we just mirror it. We echo and say, yeah, have a go. And when their perspective is incomplete and thus we give them a crumb, we give them a cue or a clue to help them get there. But the more they can own it, the better. Ultimately, they're the one running. They're the one performing, not us. In terms of, uh, so the, this, the, the other side, of the, the, um, the opposite side of the intro cue, the external, and then the analogy, could you go into some ideas on when um, an external cue or a, a cue like that's related to the environment outside the athlete would be um, a good uh, thing to do versus an analogy? Are there some athletes that an analogy may be better than an external cue? Is there situations that based off the feedback of the athletes, like, okay, let's move away from an external move into an analogy. Uh, what are some big differences there? So typically I'd say the more complex the movement is and the faster the movement is, the more analogies come into play. So And don't take my following statement as me advocating for using internal cues while people move. But in principle, on one end of a continuum, you have a slow single joint movement, okay? And then on the other end of the continuum, you have a fast multi-joint movement that requires decision-making and reaction. If those are the ends of my continuum, you'd argue 
the farther you get to the left, that internal side, single joint, slow movement, the more you can get away with internal language because there's less complications available to the movement because it's so simple. But the more you move to the right, you need to have language that provides a focus that is nimble, that is quick, and doesn't cause a lot of cognitive pollution that could interrupt the physical execution of the movement itself. And those tend to be external, and I'd argue even more so, an analogy is, is a supercharged cue when you get those micro stories right. So th that's how I would, would approach it. Now, it's interesting. At a recent workshop I was doing with a Major League Baseball organization, I asked them that very question. So now we've gone through external cues and analogies. What do all of you think are, are the best types of cues or the ones that you found are most effective for hitting and pitching? And Joel, it was clear as day when you looked at the examples on the wall and their answer, answer simply reflected it. Analogies that they all agreed the vast majority of the type of thoughts, and many of them were ex-players that even they used, that allowed them to transfer things to competition when it mattered, came in an analogy form. Because analogies are nothing more than little visuals in the mind. Uh, comparing your movement, like to a jet taking off, or loading your hip. Instead of thinking load the hip, you think bump the door closed. You know, mm. we've all imagined holding all of our groceries, and the car door or the front door is open, what do you do? You give it a little bump with the side of your hip. Well, there's something called the gather in baseball that you need to load into that back hip. So bump the door is a quick way to get that gather, that movement right. And it's far easier to think about that because bumping a door in real life requires the whole body to achieve a central goal. But telling someone just to load the hip just isolates out the hip and possibly leaves out the rest of the body in the way the coordination is perceived. So analogies hide complexity, Joel, and that's what's brilliant about them. It's like a USB stick with all this data or a Trojan horse, right? There's all this data inside this Trojan horse, but all the brain sees is a simple horse. And that's what analogies do. They allow us to download biomechan biomechanical data into the motor system, but cognitively keep a light, fluffy, cool idea that's easy to apply in real life. Oh, I love that. I, lo I is there um is there like a I mean in your book or or just anywhere like kind of a database of different analogies for because I've seen internal and external cues. I've seen coaches write okay here's some weight movements here's the ways you could internally cue it versus an external cue. But I've never seen like an analogy like data. I'm sure, but that's that's just like the art, right? Like every coach has their analogies too. Yeah. You, you've you've heard well, them they they do and they don't, Joel. They do and they don't. Well, yeah, you I, I know every coach, coach wants them. <laughs> they use them but i find a lot of coaches when i give a lecture on analogy like dang i wish i like i'm just not creative i hear that all the time but guess what joel i was one of those guys i was not using analogies i wouldn't even say they were 10 percent of my cues when i started this journey and now i'd say at least 60 percent of the things i say are by definition an analogy so in my book chapter six is called going analog so I've written an entire chapter with a very simple model on how to get the creative juices flowing to create analogies that stick. But better, not better yet, in addition to, there's over a hundred analogies in the book, Joel. And we've taken this to the level, and I got to give credit to my team at Human Kinetics. We have hand-drawn over a hundred analogies in the book. And we've taken a live model that did the actual movement real time. 
and we've transported them into this live action cartoon hand drawing type feel to give the reader the essence of what our visual system is doing to reinforce the power of these little morsels of information that people just can absorb, absorb, absorb without having to overthink. So it's probably one of, if not the most exciting things about the book is we taught, we've taken one of the most important concepts that very few understand how to actively by choice, not chance bring into their coaching toolbox. And I believe have not only given plenty of fish, but a blueprint on how to build the fishing pole for themselves. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I was just saying, as soon as you're talking about this, like, where's the list? I want to, I want to steal. And, and yeah, and you're right. Like creativity is, is, is huge. I, and I, I agree. I think we all can be creative. And I think a lot of it too, sometimes I think the more, the most creative coaches are the ones who haven't actually gone through a lot of the formal education and just came up with yes. the creative ideas themselves on how to communicate. I mean, we all have the, those coaches who had those analogies, who probably didn't even have that much education or name, but just knew it worked, you know, and they were creative and came up with it. And I think sometimes we almost hamstring ourselves by, well, what's the exact, you know, like, like, you know, it, we all just live in the internal external box sometimes. I'm really glad you mentioned yeah. that. But Joel, there's a parallel there. Think what you just said, there's a parallel with what we're talking about with our athletes' minds. And that is your observation is sometimes the coaches without the formal education, their education is in life. So they actually don't have all the biomechanical jargon to call upon. All they have is the life skills. So analogies just flow, right, like, like a stream for them because all they're doing is pulling on real-life examples to try to teach this movement that they're seeing. Well, the same thing applied to the body. If we give our athletes all these internal cues, we're creating the, the mental makeup for choking under pressure. We're creating the mental makeup for them to go back to the detail when all they needed was the, was the simplicity. And, you know, some of these minds of our players, we all know the overthinker, the one who literally their brain is a magnet for information. And they want to bring all that information into the moment when they move. But if we didn't overload them, we gave them only as much detail as required, but we kept their head, kept their headspace reserved for these analogies, these simple thoughts, these rich outcome-oriented cues and visuals that allow the movement to form as we'd like it. And we learn how to hide the detail, not discard the detail, but hide, mask the detail in the external cue and analogy. We can make our players be like that old school coach that knows how to do it. And one of the reasons they know how to do it is because they don't have all the knowledge about it. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. And I, I, like you were saying, there's almost that bandwidth of the, the slow movement. You can get away with some internal stuff. The faster the movement has to be more in the analogy, external than analogy realm. But do you think there's the same bandwidth for the, the underthinker? Or I don't know if there's such things. I, I guess there is. But like the, the, the athlete who's just totally instinctual, doesn't think about it. And then you have on the other end, the overthinker. Do you think that there's types of cues that work differently for athletes on that, that thinking yeah. conscious mind bandwidth? Because we all know the overthinker. Yeah, the, the overthinker is going to seek out the detail, whether or not you give it to them. And now with Google, all of our players can do that. They can internal cue themselves to death if they want to. And so when you're dealing with an overthinker, you have to know how to be a cue converter. And so when I start talking to them and they're like, 
listen, you know, I'm trying to get my hip hike in this spot. I need my external rotation and all my rotator cuff was just off today. When they start talking like that, I'm not going to be dismissive at all because then we start to erode their psychological state. So I'm going to, I'm going to mirror. I'm going to say, yep, absolutely spot on. But then I'm going to ask them a question. So what do you think we can focus on simply to achieve that on this next set, next rapper and competition? And inevitably using basically motivational interviewing skills, using strategic, well-positioned questions, we can walk them right to the idea that, gosh, I can't think about all this at the same time and perform well. And so, you know, a, a great example to illustrate that to the overthinker is this. Tell them the following story. There's a story of Einstein going to golf. I don't know if it was the first time, but it was one of the first times. And he got a golf instructor. So the golf instructor starts talking to him about stance and grip and backswing and follow through. And all of a sudden, Einstein said, stop. And he went over to the bag and he grabbed as many balls, as many golf balls as he could in his hands. And he said, okay, ready? Catch. And he threw all the golf balls at the instructor. And the instructor gave him a look. He's like, me trying to remember everything you just said is like you trying to catch all these balls. I need you to give me one idea so I can swing this club. And when I heard that for the first time, I thought, wow, what a brilliant story. Even keeping three little balls in your pocket to illustrate that to the overthinker. And so it's creativity and it's facilitation through asking questions. For your underthinker, if there's if there is such a thing, as you said, I would say for them, they probably can get away with the detail. And these are the individuals who the second you give them head, shoulders, knees, and toes, they can shed it for the go time. But you just have to be switched on to know where your player, your athlete sits on that continuum and use your coaching strategies uh, to good effect. I think it's that overthinker, though, that coaches need to be aware of. And I'm not saying that underthinkers, still using that term, should be getting internal cues. I'm simply saying I think we can get away with those with them to a far greater degree than than those on the overthinking continuum. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think some athletes you give them a, it's amazing actually. You can give them an internal cue that would mess up an overthinker, and they can just use the focus and awareness element of it, and it'd probably be fine. And, and it's almost like they realize what part of that doesn't work in the timing of it all, and just kind of they can roll with it. Um, yeah. I, I really quickly, cause I know we don't have a lot of time left. I was really interested in, um, I've heard the idea of, of like almost like a video or visual only, uh, or athletes who just have a visual to go by, like let's maybe the young aspiring basketball player who's just watching NBA highlights or an athlete who is um, just watching a video. I mean, is a video or seeing a video almost like an analogy? Like you're seeing something, right? So you're seeing an analogy with that right on that end. of the Ah, Joel, I like, I like the nuance of your questions here, man. Uh, this is, that, yes, I have said something very similar when I, when I run courses, is that it's what I would call a movement-to-movement movement analogy. So in the weight room, we do it all the time, right? So when we're teaching a, a squat in American football, we talk about the body position during blocking or tackling. We do the same thing in rugby. We talk about the body position during scrummaging and tackling. So we use movement-to-movement movement comparisons all the time. And we do this even with our own drills, right? We go from doing a wall drill 
to a harness sprint or a sled sprint to a real one. And someone that had success on the sled or the wall, sometimes the coach will use that as a reference point. That's a movement to movement analogy. And I think video, especially if you're contrasting effective and ineffective reps, provides that visual system with a, with a comparison. And for some athletes, back to your point, which I believe is leading to kind of the learning styles, I think that's why we need to use visually rich language. Oftentimes, the instructional technique, you know, that classic coach that is didactic, tells, 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 talks before every rep, gives the, the, the world or domain of instruction generally, Joel, a bad name. And so for me, it's not instruction being good or bad. It's about better instruction. And so in the same way that a demonstration or a visual is so powerful because it hides the detail in a system that can deal with it, and that's the visual system, without revealing all the detail to the conscious mind, guess what? That's the exact same thing that's going on with an external cue and analogy. The best external cues and analogies put a visual in the mind. Just because the visual isn't literally on a screen or in front of me doesn't make the language any less visual to the learner. And ultimately, whether I'm seeing something or hearing something that causes sight, in both of those cases, we know they're more effective techniques because they're brilliant. They hide the detail, giving the conscious mind just the intention. It's like I put the GPS destination in. I don't know all the coordinates that this system's going to take me on to get me there. I simply give it the destination and boom, I'm there. I think that's a useful analogy on why external cues, visuals, and spoken analogies are so effective. You give the brain the outcome, the destination, you phrase it the right way, and all the detail to get there is downloaded. Yeah, I love the idea of just giving the conscious mind the intention to <laughs> like that's the that's, that's what it. it can handle. That's, that's what it can handle. <laughs> um, awesome, man. Yeah. And I'm even I'm sure we could this be a whole other show, but just the emotions behind analogies too, and emotional oh, responses. Yes. Yeah, we need another yes. hour for that. <laughs> um, quickly, I'll give, know- give you a sound bite, Joel. I'll give you a sound bite. Emotions are like hashtags. Literally, they are. And the more our language is colored with the right emotion the more memorable the physical words are. And as a byproduct, the more memorable the movements they encourage are. I love that. I love that because how often do we think of what emotional response is our language um, yeah. creating in, in the cueing and coaching process? We want to be motivating and inspiring, but I think that creating a picture that can, especially with the analogies, there's so much room to inspire people emotionally in analogies uh, of all athletes. And I think especially young athletes, but definitely all athletes. You know. Um, okay. I got to give you a story. I got to give you a story here on that because you triggered something. <laughs> Association, right? We were talking about that. I had a guy when I was personal training way back in the day, I was still learning how to be a strength coach and we were doing his intake just to get to know him, get to understand his goals. And one of the things he talked about was his son. And so him and his wife were separated and his son was the most important thing in his life. And he said this to me, I said, what's your goal here? And this, this took me by surprise He's like, my son is a young kid. I think he was like, I don't know, five, let's say, has a poster of Superman on his wall. His idol is Superman. He said, so my goal 
is to be his Superman. Everything I'm doing in my life, working out, eating well, being a good person, spending time with him, I want to be my son Superman. Now, I'm an emotional person, Joel, so I had to hold back tears because yeah. already I'm like, man, this is, this is going to be a great guy to work with. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. We were doing an RDL, okay, a single leg RDL. And this dude was a bent nail, right? We all know this. Shoulders were hunched over. Leg was down. His body was the opposite of straight. So we get done with the set. And I said, listen, next time you go do this, this rep on this next set, I want you to think of Superman, that straight body position flying through the air as he goes off the roof to catch Lois Lane. Give me that Superman straight position at the bottom. And I kid you not, Joel, he grabs the weight, locks in, loads down, flat position. When he comes up at the end of the set, he was crying. And he said, thank you. And I say that because I have witnessed not necessarily such an emotional response in the moment since, but I've absolutely seen that same emotional response. At the end of the day, the language we use to coach the movement can tap into why they are even there moving in the first place. And don't for a second think your language is just building better movement. It is building better relationships between you and the client. And I'd argue better people in the process. Man, I couldn't agree more. I almost get like a little misty. I will. I'm hearing you tell that story. It's like my hair just kind of stand on that because that's, that's what it's all about. You know, like I love how it, it's like how you do anything is how you do everything. This goes so much yes. further and it's, but it's like, it goes to the core of what it means to be an athlete and a human being. I love it, Nick. I, I know we're out of time for today. Last thing is just, can you tell us a little bit about your book coming out? You mentioned it a few times. I'd love to hear more about that when it's released and, and that, that project. Yeah. So I, so the book is the language of coaching, the art and science of teaching movement. You can't miss it. It's a bright yellow, green and black cover with words all on it. Uh, and a sprinter. It's coming out from Human Kinetics. Its drop date should be April 20th or 23rd, somewhere in there. I mean, it ships. Uh, it's currently available to pre-order on wherever you like to pre-order your books, Human Kinetics, Amazon, and the like. So from a pre-order perspective, it's there. I'm putting a lot of, of detail and marketing out there on Instagram and Twitter. Both of them are at Nick Winkleman. You can also join the Language of Coaching group and page on Facebook. More and more will be going on both of those. And the group on Facebook, will I will be addressing it, if not daily, weekly, for any questions that people have on the book. My goal is to create a conversation about conversation. You know, this is, this is a book about the language that we use to help others uh, optimize what, the, what they want to do from a movement perspective. And so those would be the main areas, my man, to, to find out more and to get your hands on the book. That sounds awesome, man. Well, hey, I really appreciate uh, the chat today. And man, I feel like I could talk for hours about you, uh, this with you. I, I love this stuff. And um, yeah, your book sounds amazing. So thank you so much for your time, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joel. Really appreciate it as well. All right, that wraps up another show. 
that was an awesome one. And there is, again, there's no way that you can have listened to that and not come out with some more tools, ideas on ways to be an ambassador to help guide an athlete to their own highest potential. We appreciate you guys as listeners. And if you want to support what we're doing, the best way you can do that is to head over to iTunes, Stitcher, leave us a rating or review. We'd really appreciate it. It helps spread the message of what we're doing and gets this show out there to people who want to and need this type of information. Also, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They've been a long-time sponsor of this show. We enjoy their support, and we support their mission of having a great blog with awesome information as well as having an incredible online store with a lot of really cool pieces of sport training tech. So be sure to visit them. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.